0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include The Villain Clock, The Lovecraft Film Fest, Obeying Canon, and The Death of Pompeii. part where we talk about murder. Right, Murder of Crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of Crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell
1: murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy
0: to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, can can be found in Murder of
1: Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion
0: will get special Canon Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get up to and as always Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful and spot on uh, yours looks fetchingly betrachian the deal is this head to
1: atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin oh dear <laughs> Bye.
0: murder of crows <laughs> and get the Ken and Robin promo cards you may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs that's right not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly shag-carpeted confines... Of the gaming hut, and here in the gaming hut, there is a clock on the wall, and it is perhaps one of those clocks that looks like a coffin with the hands that go to 13 o'clock, but it is ticking down ever so loudly and ever so horribly because it is the villain clock. Robin, here we're going to talk about one of my favorite techniques for making a game happen, the villain clock. And since it's one of my favorite techniques, perhaps you should start talking about it.
0: Um, Well, I think maybe I will actually just uh, throw it back to you in a sec, because I think you probably use it more than I do. Um, It's something we've talked about on uh, panels, and we haven't addressed on the show, so we're addressing it now. So basically, the villain clock is the idea that The villains aren't all just waiting around, hanging out in their uh, various uh, locations, their dungeon rooms, as it were, waiting for the heroes to come in and uh, beat them up. That they're actually actively doing things out in the world that the heroes have to stop. And they have an agenda and they have a timetable so that if the heroes are just hanging around, uh, wasting time uh, going down to the uh, weapon shop or repairing their ship or uh, perhaps... uh, Arguing incessantly, without actually ever getting anywhere, that uh, they have to get on the ball and uh, do things in a certain time frame, or the uh, villain will advance closer and closer to his agenda. And that agenda might be murder. Murder. Uh, You know, it might be one of those uh, mystery scenarios where the bad guy is slowly bumping off. Uh, NPCs and the, uh, faster you act, the fewer NPCs, uh, and hopefully the, uh, NPCs who don't necessarily, uh, hold a tug in your heartstrings go first. And so you know that there's an escalating thing where f- further along it's the NPCs you really care about, uh, who are going to get bumped off. So you got to act. You got to go do things. So Ken, that's the principle. What is the, The practice of it. How do you implement this in play? What I do is I come up with
1: someone whose agenda, whose villainous agenda is both villainous, i.e. it's something that the player characters can be assumed not to want to happen. And every now and again, I get burned by that. But mostly I can come up with things like, you know, um, uh, usurp the rightful throne or destroy the world or whatever, something that the player characters will take unkindly to. And then that goal has to sort of justify being a focus, if not the focus of the campaign. So it's got to be a fairly large in scope, or at least in relative scope in terms of the whole campaign, uh, goal. I mean, you don't have to destroy the world if you're playing a sort of a gritty block by block game of Hunter the Vigil or, or, uh, an urban, uh, F20 game. You, the goal could just be to knock down all the buildings on the block, dispossess all the people and build a really great, um, uh, government weapons lab there or something. Yeah. The, the stakes are big by the standard of whatever constitutes right. big stakes. In and the game. reason that they, the stakes have to be big is because it has to have a measurable consequence if the players do in fact diddle around and not start fighting it. Because if it's the sort of goal where they hear much later that, oh, it turned out that that guy murdered the the heiress, and you're like, well, there you go. Heiresses get murdered all the time. That's why they're heiresses. It has to be something that really sort of will have ripples and effects throughout the game world so that even if they go over to the next block, they're still going to get refugees and they're still gonna get, uh, problems coming in, uh, you know, uh, loose weapons, toxins, whatever, uh, that, that, uh, that are gonna mess up their, their lives. So the villain has to have a scheme that is of, you know, major scope relatively to the game, it has to be clearly villainous, and they have to be doing it in sort of an interesting way, one that has ideally a lot of little steps so that you can have a lot of little scenarios to recognize it, fight it, detect it, run away from it, whatever it happens to be. Right,
0: because if the problem is, at such and such a time, he sets off the vortex that destroys the world, uh, there's no incremental steps in between that that you could foil or not foil yeah i mean and so you (laughs) need to structure it also as like a a cat and mouse game where uh you know step one is he has to steal the ingredients from the science uh, lab and uh if you manage to foil him you partially foil him you set him back but you don't uh also it has to be incremental in both directions that Mm -hmm. uh, interrupting any one given step of the villain's agenda does not stop him cold, but it either gives you a relative advantage or disadvantage going in. So that if you stop him from stealing the gems, well, he gets, uh, you know, crummier gems somewhere else, but you know that the, uh, the clock is still ticking at all times that you want to, it's a mechanism to keep the pressure on. Right. And
1: I learned that, uh, from massive near Lothotep where on such and such a date in, I think 1928, they're going to launch that rocket and open up the gateway and their type is going to show up and beat everyone to pieces. And no matter how much they, you know, run around the world, that, you know, uh, that scheme is, is ticking down and they are uncovering the aspects of that scheme while not necessarily being in a position to immediately stop it until they get to the very last part of the adventure and have enough information ideally to stop it. That, of course, masks is one of the great role playing campaigns of all time. And so it makes a great model for you to use, maybe on a lower scope, maybe with less horrific murder alleys uh, than that game uh, features. But the way that solving the various clues and mysteries uncovers information needed to stop the vortex from opening, even if it doesn't necessarily thwart the villain ahead of time. That kind of is the ideal situation where the villain's scheme is large enough that it has tendrils and effects outward, but you have to follow those tendrils to the main uh night switch that will destroy or not destroy the world. Whereas, yeah, if you could stop his uh mission cold just by stealing the gems, then he gets a new mission of stealing those gems back from you, which is a great way to drive play but it's less um what i want to say it's, it's it becomes less all encompassing and it just becomes you really tucked off the anti-paladin now he's hunting you which is again great but doesn't really have the world effects that i like about a villain clock because one of the things that's good about a villain clock is the villain is operating in the background he's not entirely consumed with you the player characters until ideally much later in the scenario where he's realized that you are the only people who mysteriously keep getting up his nose as opposed to the cops or the good wizards or whoever... In theory, is stopping the world from ending. In
0: in that world, there is one X factor responsible for foiling my plans. Who is it? These insignificant insects. And then he turns his uh, his guns directly on you. Exactly,
1: and that usually that makes a good third act turn, right? The the point at which the villain realizes, oh, it's you people, and then he starts sending night gaunts or a um, uh, uh, lizard man or whatever it is that he has in his um uh, in his uh you know in his arsenal. After you to, to stop you from stopping him because he recognizes that you do, in fact, have enough information and the bizarre gumption necessary to, uh, to close him down. But if it starts off as a, as a grudge fight or a vendetta, again, that's a great way to run a game, but it's harder to sort of have that naturally flow into the world and make the world feel real because part of the great thing about a villain clock is because it has effects on non player characters, because it has effects in whole other countries, maybe. It makes the world, uh, it gives it more dimension and more depth because you can say, well, we're not staying here in this block because it's full of, um, uh, horrible, uh, weapons fa- facilities. We're going to go over here to this other province. Well, o- over in this other province, that's where they're mining out the, the poisonium that they need to build the weapons with. And that's, you're going to stumble on that aspect of the villain's
0: plan. Right. And another reason to hold the point where the villain notices you and starts to lash out at you as long as you possibly can is that, In role-playing games more than in the fictional source material, characters tend to turtle when they are being attacked, turtling, of course, being where you dig in and go defensive and you stop doing things, and ergo, the story stops dead. Now, as GM, you can, of course, fast-forward to the moment when the lizard men come crashing through the stained-glass window and, uh, you know, attack you and so forth, but that's uh, something that you uh, have to balance uh, hope and fear all the time in role-playing narratives. But in a villain clock scenario, you really want to uh, make sure that the uh, h- characters or the players really more uh, see at every moment a couple of possible things that they can do, because as soon as they uh, conclude that the best course of action is to uh, dig in and, and uh, hide in their trench, uh, then you're going to have big pacing problems.
1: Of course, the other great thing about the villain clock is that if they're hiding in their trench and you've done your job as the GM, they know that hiding in their trench is losing. It's letting the villain go about his plans unmolested. And the longer they stay you know, walled up in their bunker... The longer the villain can just go rampage all over the setting and do whatever he wants. And that should be something that gets the players off the dime and out of their hole. And they may think, well, you know, we, it's good to have our hole to, to run back to after we've messed with the villain. And maybe you let that happen a couple of times. And then the villain again, ideally at the third act turn comes up with some way to bunker bust their headquarters. And now it's, now it's on, right? Cause he blew up their, he blew up their loot box.
0: That guy? That villain? That that loot box buster-upper. And another uh, thing about the sort of incremental stages of the villain's plot, the early things in the clock, is that it might not be that when you arrive on the scene and you deal with them, that you directly thwart the things that the villain needs to continue his plot but you may be kind of doing mop-up duty especially early on so if he unleashes a shagath as a diversion while he steals the gems you as the player characters might in fact be preventing the shagath from uh, devouring a nearby apartment block full of people and Afterwards, you then find out that he's stolen the gems. And so uh, there can be sort of an investigative aspect that takes you from a uh, point in the villain scheme A to villain scheme point B to C and so forth. But you can structure those so that uh, the players can have fun, interesting things to do that increase their amount of knowledge about what's going on, but don't require you to have an infinitely forking villain plan. The other thing that you
1: have um, with the sort of uh, what you call mop up is you can have w- what I like to call knock on effects or billiard ball effects. The villain is off doing something awful and that is driving sort of. In the, in the sense of the, the world's ecosystem, it's driving other predators out to softer pickings and those other predators may be who you're taking on. So you're not even taking on the villain there in, in that one section. You're taking on the orcs that he uprooted or the uh, biker gang that he chased away with his horrible magic. So you're taking on the people who have decided to join up with the villain and are now conquering some, some sub branch of, of the, of the area in order to just get in good with the villain. And so your direct opponent is not necessarily going to be the villain, but it's going to be something that if you look into it or you interrogate them, you know, why are you here? Why are you attacking? Uh, you can find out some information that the villain exists and that the villain is dangerous. And especially if you've built up this one bad guy to be a pretty boss, uh chief orc or b- bike gang leader, you know, when you finally are slapping him around to find out what drove him in here and he's like, oh, I was afraid of uh, Lord Necrotor. And you're like, Really? You were afraid of a guy named Lord Necrotor? That is unlikely. And then they look into it and they find, oh, well, actually, he is kind of a, a badass. And that gives them an organic way of discovering the villain, as opposed to simply saying, you just happen to be the lucky winners of, uh,
0: you know, Lord Necrotor's um, uh, lowest level thug, uh, robbing a bank right in front of you. At... Oh no, it's, it's, it's not any necrotor. It's Eugene necrator of the Massachusetts necrotor. Yes. The much worse as opposed to the, the Ohio ones who actually, they were pretty decent. They, yeah, you like know, engage in local philanthropy and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much bookkeeping, uh, do you do in terms of the, uh, time that the, uh, is ticking away? Do you actually, uh, you know, map out the expenditure of time by the uh, players? Or, in fact, are you actually kind of uh, uh, freewheeling it uh, based on uh, the pacing of the story so that when things start to get dull, you introduce the next stage of the the villain clock? How much of a literal clock is your villain clock? Uh, My
1: villain clock usually winds up having at least a a number of stages established uh, just to beginning, just so that I can sort of foreshadow things. And that's one of the important aspects because I use the villain clock so much to deepen the world. I if I have some aspect of the world written down, I will have a little note that says, here how this part act activates with the villain. And it may be uh that it's a a temple of good and it's not going to act against the villain except maybe it's going to be sheltering his victims or it's going to be helping out. But at some point, you know, step four in his plan is he's got to bust into it and blow up its altar so that they can't use good magic against him, or whatever it happens to be. So all of the elements of the world have a little squib that says, here's how they interact with the villain clock, and maybe at what stage of his plan... I usually don't immediately start out with a, you know, absolute date and time unless it's something really awesome like, you know, on Imbulk 1933 the villain will, you know, m- magically make Hitler in charge of Germany or something. Then you have a a a, a pre-established uh, villain moment that's historical, but as long as you can sort of get away with moving it back and forth a little bit, that gives you a little more wiggle room. In case the players come with a really excellent, oh, my God, it's Val 1929. He's going to destroy the world's economy. And you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's all right. That's much better than my stupid plan. And so you can move it around. Um, but I I try to have at least sort of the broad stages of what the villain is up to so that, again, I can sense when the next escalation happens and foreshadow what it's going to be. Uh, you know, why would he be stealing Shoggath precursor material oh right i guess i figured that part out just by saying it
0: out loud that kind of thing so you're not having the moment where you go okay well this planning session obviously took half an hour and it obviously takes four hours to get to dusseldorf you're not uh doing it in that literal a manner i i almost never
1: does anything that i run run uh, more smoothly with bookkeeping and time bookkeeping is just as bad as bullet bookkeeping or money bookkeeping. My players being grown ups will accept it if I say, "Well, it looks like you've pretty much you know spent all week doing that. It's the next week we're starting at such and such a time uh, now and again, I mean, for example, in the game that I'm running right now, uh because we know that a certain thing is due to happen on Halloween eighteen eighty one we're sort of spending a little more worry. Is it afternoon? Is it evening? How close are we to Halloween? Is it the 29th? Is it the 30th type questions? But it's not, well, it took you 15 minutes to put on those boots. That's 15 more minutes down the clock. It's just a matter of obviously most of the day has passed. It's sundown and with most horror stories, if you track things by "Is it sundown, is it the full moon is it the new moon you 've done all the tracking you need to do
0: uh, well, in that case i I do use the villain clock uh, because the the uh the literal clock part of it, as you suggest, that actually keeping track of time and making players think that uh, specific increments of time uh, are a precious resource. is more of a pain and seems slower and more arduous than as you suggest. Uh, you know, giving them the general indication of their needing to act quickly and then uh, playing kind of fast and loose with you know, it's uh, broad periods of time. It's morning. It's afternoon. It's sundown. It's the middle of the night. And uh, you know, oddly enough, uh, middle of the night seems to happen a lot. Yeah. Um
1: <laughs> uh middle of the night does happen a lot but that's just, you know, the way of the world when you're playing a horror game is that so much more stuff turns out to happen at night than you really wanted it to.
0: Just one thing and another. Yeah, he whittled away all that time fixing the tape deck. Oh, it's the middle of the it's night. The middle of the what? Night. How how does that happen? Uh yeah, the tape decks, they're fascinating. I mean I shouldn't have been
1: looking at Twitter all this time. Yes, that was that was on me. I I went and got a burrito. I don't know. You could you could do a a a uh, down to the minute clock but I think you'd want to do that in the course of a real um uh, like a single day murder mystery you know you're all in the old dark house and if you can get till dawn you're lucky uh then you then you inherit the house or you win a million dollars that sort of deal um that kind of thing you could use an actual clock for or Another sort of a ticking time scenario where it's like the terrorists have got the, the vampire gas bomb that's going to go off at midnight and you have until you have 24 hours, Jack Bauer, to find the vampire bomb. And if you're running a game that literally had a moment of time as a, as a key thematic element, then you might want to do the actual clock part where it's like, it's taking you this much time. Okay. You can do
0: it, but it'll take you an hour. Okay. You can do it, but it'll take you two hours. Right. And, and have a clock whose hands the, players can physically move and make them move the hand each time they expand time. Yeah. Or, um, yeah, you, you can certainly do that. I've, I've done occasionally I've done
1: things where you have X amount of time, real time. And I, you know, set a, set a watch or have someone set a timer on their computer and it's like, okay, in 10 minutes, the, the, the guys are coming in the door, you know, it, what are you doing? And then they have 10 minutes to decide and that can be good. But, that's really a tactical villain clock. That's not good, I think, for a strategic villain clock to have to be um,
0: uh, pixel bitching about every single passage of an hour. Well, speaking of time and hours and uh, time passing, we have, I think, run out of time for this segment. So it's time to move on to the next The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity,
1: and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula Dossier is finally available for pre-order
0: by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts,
1: but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow
0: the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different examples Encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom. Or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign
1: for Knight's Black agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign
0: for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken, unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6... And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters... ...are both available for pre-order at the Pellgrin website right now. Check! And, mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The sound of luggage roller wheels being crushed by baggage handlers, and the announcement on the PA telling us that our flight has been delayed due to weather over the Midwest informs us that it's time to issue yet another travel advisory. And in this case, Ken, uh, you are just back from the HP Lovecraft Film Festival in beautiful cloud-swaddled Portland, Oregon. Uh, So uh, this is, uh, although it's called a film festival, there's also convention-like elements, hence you're being out there doing the guest thing and uh, uh paneling and so forth. But were there uh films that you got to see in between your panel commitments that you'd like to uh, kick off your advisory with?
1: There were indeed. I saw all three of the new live-action features. I did not see something called Extraordinary Tales, which was a collection of animated shorts set to sort of Edgar Allan Poe stories, I guess. And then they used sort of clever voice, uh, bits. So they found like a recording of Bella Lugosi reading a post story. And then they did an animated thing to it so they can say, Hey, it's a movie starring Bella Lugosi in 2015. Pretty boss. <laughs> but I thought, yes, well, it would only be his 394th film. It would only be, he's, he's going to get to 400. Eventually he's going to pass Meryl Streep. Um, so I, I I gave that one a miss, and I didn't see the uh, – re- they usually do a revival screening of uh, an older film. And in this case, they showed a very obscure Christopher Lee film called City of the Dead, which I wanted to see, but I had panels. And they uh, showed, again, the good old silent Call of Cthulhu as sort of the glamorous uh, 10th anniversary screening. And they showed Reanimator because the guest of honor was Jeffrey Combs, but I've seen Reanimator – a lot of times in my misspent youth and I'd seen Call of Cthulhu, uh, previously. So I stuck to the three new features and, um, the easily the best one of them, the, for, for my money, the reason to go out to the, to the fest, the one that sort of made it all worthwhile was a film called Black Mountainside and, uh, Black Mountainside is directed by a guy named Nick. Sastakewish, I think, or something like that. Sastakawishki. Statashawis or something. It's uh Nick S-Z-O-S-T-A-K-I-W-S-K-Y-J- the movie is called Black Mountainside. Let's stick to that. And it's a Canadian <laughs> movie. It is a Wendigo movie, although the film uh, makers in the Q&A said that they only realized it was a Wendigo movie once they started showing it and cutting it and had cut it together. And they had their final uh, uh, work print and they showed it to some people. And they were like, oh, that's a great Wendigo movie. And they were, oh, yeah, I guess it is. It was described by a friend of mine at the fest. As Stanley Kubrick directs the thing and while it is not as good as Stanley Kubrick and not as good as the thing, it is definitely in that quadrant. So if you, if that sounds good to you, you will like, you will love Black Mountainside because it is really, really good. It's just those are two absolute epical superlatives and it's no shame to be Kubrick-esque and thing-like, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there's, uh, they're, they're sort of the northernmost of a chain of outposts in the Canadian Rockies. And they, uh, they have uncovered a structure that is impossible. It's, uh, 20,000 years old, perhaps predates the ice age. And it's a building and they're like, what is this building and why are there pots and why are there mysterious cairns built around it by later Indians and what is going on? And indeed something does go on and, uh, their, uh, radio stops working. And of course now they're stuck and it is December in the Canadian Rockies and troubles on the hoof, literally. And I don't want to give it away, but if you say, you know, sort of, um, um, I see isolation and bad archaeology and Lovecraft Film Festival, you sort of may have a guess as to what direction it's going. And it is very wendigo and I, I thought it was terrific. I thought it was super great, and it's well worth tracking down if you can find it. Everyone does a, a great job, and the, the acting is good. It's a fully professional-looking film. Um It's going to be well worth uh, finding wherever you can
0: find it. So is this produced on a level where it's going to Show up in uh, on DVD and your Netflixes and so forth, or is it going to be on like the fan tables at your next uh, horror convention?
1: I would be very surprised if it doesn't wind up on Netflix, uh, I th- or, or the your local streaming alternative. I, it's it's an absolutely professional horror film, and it won the screenplay competition at uh, the film fest in I want to say twenty thirteen, and then uh, they went and they made the movie, which never happens to movies that, to screenplays that win. But it is, it, it is absolutely professional looking. It, I don't know that it's going to wind up with a, a, a wide release, but I think it's, it's des- definitely destined to go on Netflix sometime.
0: Uh, and so that's Black Mountain Side, is that? Black
1: Mountain Side, like the, um, uh, Jimi Hendrix song.
0: Okay. Uh, and, uh, that was the best one. You saw two others. Uh, what, what were they all about? Yes. Two other features. Uh, I saw, um, a
1: movie called The Winter, which is, uh, directed by Konstantinos Kotsouliatos. Uh, it's about a Greek, uh, writer who is a failure and he goes back to his childhood home and it turns out his dad was up to weird stuff in the childhood home, which is why he never made a success of his life. And he sort of has, uh, the, the, the blurb is like he has to decide between going deeper into his fantasy life and growing up and becoming a re- responsible member of society. But, he doesn't ever seem to treat part two as an option. This is just a movie about a guy who, um, continuously burrows into the stomach of his, of his toxic, uh, family past, which is to say it's a very Lovecraftian film in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, the specifics of the, of the house and the, I don't say haunting, but let's say haunting, the effects of the house are also Lovecraftian, but it doesn't, um, it's not a, a movie that does a lot of, you know, uh, name checking or whatever. It's very, this is a Lovecraftian event in this guy's life. Uh, I didn't like it super much because the main character was so grotesquely unappealing that I was sort of
0: just waiting for him to be dragged away into the vortex in the basement or whatever. The thing about a spiral into destruction movie is you have to be rooting for the character to reverse their spiral into destruction rather than rooting for them to finally get it. Yeah,
1: Um, And also the choice of um, sort of the, the, what do I want to call it? The the grime aesthetic of, of the movie did not, uh appeal to me and the fact that this guy was basically willing to live in this pit. Uh it it told me a lot more about his character than I think that they wanted me to know. Um so I I was not a giant fan of the winter, although I think that a lot of it was really good and it was effective. It's it's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think that it it super worked for me. And the uh, last one? And the last one is a movie called uh The Borderlands in the UK and Final Prayer in America. It's directed by a guy named Elliot Goldner uh, it's sort of a, um, it's a, it's a big part of it is found footage. Uh, so that will tell you part of what you like or don't like about it. It's the movie about, uh, the sort of hardcore team that are associated with the, uh, congregation, they call themselves the, the, the good old inquisition. And they're there checking out reports of supernatural happenings. And what they do is that they wire up Everything with cameras to make sure that every possible supernatural thing that might happen is recorded, that there's no gaps in the footage where someone might have pulled a prank. And then, as one might expect, something goes wrong. And it's got a sort of a Arthur Mackin, uh, ancient English countryside paganistic feel to it. But between being found footage and the fact that it almost more seems like three movies that have the same cast and are on the same, you know, happening in series, I don't think that it Cohered as well as say Black Mountainside or as well as, um, uh, other horror films that work better or even other found footage films that work better, uh, where something like Wreck is, you know, is a strong through line of a story with, you know, an ongoing direction that you can follow, uh, and thematic unities. Uh, Final Prayer didn't really have those things. It, it sort of, switched up and at one point you're like, oh, this is the Exorcist. At one point you're like, oh, this is Wreck. And at one point you're like, what the hell is going on? So I don't I don't feel that it was super, super successful in the in the same way that uh Black Mountainside was with the with a unity of of theme and a unity of feel. And I think for a horror film and especially a found footage film, you really have to have that. And if you compare this to something like Blair Witch Project, it's you can you can sort of see the missing ingredient I think in this one. Although it's still, if you're a fan of the Vatican sends their elite ghost hunters into a mysterious circumstance movies, which I am, you know, a third of that movie is going to just really really speak to you. And afterwards, I was talking to horror writer Oren Gray, who's a fan of anything where the problem suddenly gets exponentially larger movies. And so we we're like, yep, well, there, there you go. You liked a third of that movie, and uh, <laughs> if you're a found footage fan, it's it's really good found footage. They they, they utilize the the technology really well. So um, I think anyone uh, who's any kind of sort of modern day horror fan will find a, a B plus level of enjoyment in it. But I think getting it to A is going to be maybe a, a little bit beyond.
0: So uh, those those were the films as to the panels you took part in or witnessed. Was there one that stood out to you as being an uh, atypical or fresh? Uh, topic for a uh, Lovecraft-themed
1: panel? Uh, the, my favorite of the three uh, that I did, and it's not that I didn't enjoy the other ones, but uh, when you say atypical or fresh, one of them was Lovecraft on the tabletop. Yay, we'll talk about gaming. And one of them was uh, sort of a gallimaufry of, of quick questions, which is just fun but didn't have a uh, connected uh, moment to it. But I did enjoy the uh, re-mythology of Lovecraft, which is, I think... I don't want to speak for, uh, Gwen and Brian, but I think it may have been based on what and I. Gwen and
0: Brian are?
1: Gwen and Brian Callahan, the organizers of the fest. Uh, uh, they may have based this on what I've said before in Toward Lovecraft about the fact that Lovecraft is building a new mythology for the scientific age, that he is making it possible for us to tell myth stories and horror stories in a vocabulary that does not immediately sound nonsensical in the world of Darwin and Hubble. It's not and cedars
0: and fawns and nymphs and so forth. Right. It's, it's
1: uh lands where the dimensional rules are different and extra dimensional entities and aliens and things like that, that are science horrors and science uh, symbols. And this is something that I've long believed is one of, is the reason that we should keep reading and, and studying Lovecraft is because of this incredible cultural, Mythological revolution that he, that he encompassed, even greater than the Copernican revolution that, uh, that Liber talks about. Uh, and I think that his effect on, on culture is so huge. Uh, again, him, Owen Wister and Dashiell Hammett, you take those three out and pretty much all of 20th and 21st century pop culture goes away. So I very much think that Lovecraft deserves addressing on, on that level. And it was myself, uh, Charles Strauss, Molly Tanzer, who is a, a great, uh, horror writer, uh, Ross Lockhart, the, um, uh, a great anthologist of Lovecraft and, uh, writer Sean Hode were all on the panels, uh, the panel. And so that was a really good mix. And everyone, I think, really brought sort of what they thought of as the Lovecraftian mythology to it. And so I, I thought that that was a really strong panel. Um, again, I was on it, so maybe you should ask someone who was watching it, but I, I think we did a pretty good job. And, uh, it wasn't just everyone agreeing with each other, but I think we all sort of agreed that Lovecraft was engaged in mythopoesis as much as he was engaged in anything else.
0: Uh, now, you were out on the uh, West Coast, and so I assume there were uh, pagan-slash-arc-dreamers in attendance?
1: There were. There were indeed. Uh, the lovely and talented Scott Glancy is a fixture at the uh, fest and was indeed a fixture at this one. Um, so it's always, a, you know, you could always find Scott, of course, because you just listen for the booming voice. And, um, uh, you just the, look up. Look up the, the, the word uh, dog head is another good way to, to find Scott. <laughs> um, he was on the, uh, both the gaming panel and the, and the miscellany panel with me. So that was, that was great fun. And we obviously got some, some drinking in. And then I was there as sort of, uh, con buddies with fellow Torontonian Lehman Kessler, uh, our very own Ask H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, the future non Torontonian. Yeah, future, future refuture American. He's going to go yeah. to, uh, the Columbus, Ohio neighborhood, which means I
0: will see him at Origins. He has been reassigned. Yes. Um, so uh, when you were hanging out with Scott, were there any uh, uh, brainstorming happening for uh, Fall of Delta Green, your uh, upcoming and now kickstarting add-on to the uh, Delta Green uh, Kickstarter that's in progress? And this is, the, of course, the standalone uh, gumshoe Delta Green uh, game. Uh, we talked a little bit. It was
1: more along the lines of, here, did you know this horrible thing that the CIA was doing in the 60s type stuff as opposed to brainstorming the actual game. Uh, or here's a fun fact about Indochina. And, and, uh, with Scott, a lot of, uh, our discussion turns on, uh, guess what awful thing has happened in the world either just recently or In history, and then we. So,
0: is is there an awful thing in the period you can uh, you can tease for us here?
1: uh, I think that one of the things that we mostly, uh, to the extent that we talked about anything specific as opposed to playing one-upmanship games, uh, we did talk about sort of the the notion of '60s one-off cults, the sort of Manson cults, and the individual uh, weird gurus that sort of pop up. And, uh, I think I may have mentioned the Maury Terry thesis that all of the mass murderers, the, the Mansons and the son of Sam and all these guys are all connected in one sort of, uh, ultra religion or ultra cult. Uh, Maury Terry's notion that they're all connected in this ultimate, uh, uh, super cult that underlies all of that. And, and will this work? And is that too much of a muchness? Or is it more fun if they're all just sort of little pustules on the face of the world that are coming out as, uh, the The end times are drawing near, so we sort of went back and forth on on that little bit uh after of course name checking the congo where which I think we're going to be name checking quite a bit
0: um well, before we leave Portland uh, and go back to our uh plane of huts uh, is there another uh Thought or highlight you want to leave us with? Well, um, I think
1: that people should be uh, listening ahead for the eventual Powell's book raid, because Powell's... It was able to restock in a mere
0: half year? It it was
1: able to restock in a mere half year, and I think it sort of stepped up its restockage uh, from yours and my trip to it. Uh, So there will be another Ken's Bookshelf in the future. And I think that people in Portland who want to eat pancakes around things should go (sighs) to Batter which is a uh, a restaurant that uh, focuses on pancakes and you can have savory kind of pancakes or sweet pancakes, but it's, uh, they also have crepes if you're, you know, boring and want to do things the way they're supposed to be done. But I had, for example, the full Monty, which is the pancake around uh, pulled pork and Gruyere cheese uh, topped with uh, powdered sugar and berry syrup so that it's basically a Monte Cristo sandwich only instead of ham, it's uh roast pork. And instead of a sandwich it's a pancake so that was and that is sort of the the uh the type of thing that one gets at batter and the pancakes are, are crazily good which is of course the core uh sort of element of any sort of pancake based cuisine
0: so i recommend batter
1: in portland oregon
0: okay well uh it's time to uh get on our respective planes and i will meet you at the next hut What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF Drive Thru RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric
1: oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right?
0: Indeed they do, Ken, and in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as Fallen Gods, Rune Punk Steam Quests, Lamb Chop Love Songs, and the comic strip adventures of lazy, beer-loving Bernard the
1: Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagalln. Ask
0: for Askfagalln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Peter Darley asks Ken and Robin, How much does reflecting canon of established properties matter to you When making scenarios robin um you've made scenarios for a number of established properties uh how much does that affect you and conversely if you're doing a game that is reminiscent of incorporative of reflects but does not necessarily um partake directly of an established uh property like say feng shui which has to reflect sort of the broader uh hong kong and Solaverse, but is not necessarily hard-boiled the rpg to what extent do you, what, what are the places that you look for touchstones that you can't get away from? I guess that's, that's, that's my way of making this question more interesting.
0: Right. Okay. So you've made a, a two part question. Yes. I'm going to jump back to the first part, the obvious part okay. of the question, and then we can uh, go off and, and we'll put a pin in that second bit. Um. Normally when you're writing uh, an actual licensed property and it is a licensed property that is active and has people who have to approve it on continuity grounds, you absolutely have to adhere to established continuity at least to the level that the property adheres to its own continuity. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's very different from property to property and, and can be different from regime to regime of the same property. So for example, over time, uh, dealing with, uh, Star Trek, uh, there have been times when, uh, they've been kind of laissez faire and, uh, other times when there are sticking points and you kind of have to know as a, as a writer that you're going to get a, a, uh, possibly a bunch of notes back about making sure that it adheres, uh, to the property. And what, uh, property managers are most often interested in is broader sort of look and feel issues they don't you're not necessarily dealing with the person who has the same encyclopedic knowledge of it that a huge fan does but they have particular look and feel sticking points that they are very interested in maintaining so for example there was a period in star trek where they were very much enforcing the gene roddenberry dictum that starfleet is not a military organization Later, the shows went in a different direction in the post-Roddenberry era, where uh, in order to reflect what was going on in the world and to make their versions of Star Trek darker, uh, Starfleet became more of a military organization. And that was no longer an issue. Um, and there were things that you could do that you would think of as being kind of an affectionate. A nod or analysis to uh, what you were doing that you could still get an objection to more on look and feel grounds. Like, for example, for Star Trek, I wrote a a breakdown of the typical structure of a Star Trek episode, and I thought I was just doing a, you know, here's a standard analysis, but that it came back as, well, we think this is kind of flip and, and reductive, and so that didn't pass through. So you often find yourself uh you know, getting reactions that are uh different than what you had in mind. So when you're working on a, a property where someone else is determining how well you're adhering to it, you have to pay a lot of attention to it and you have to make uh changes to uh to that effect. And anyone who works with licensed properties, uh if they are willing to be candid with you, can tell you uh which properties are uh, easy to work with, or which property holders are easy to work with, and which ones are uh, a pain. And uh, with a established property that is not as uh, aggressively policed, for example, writing
1: Trail of Cthulhu, which in is a license, because it's a license from Chaosium, from, uh, I suppose, ultimately, Arkham House and a, and a congeries of other writers, but no one uh, involved, for example, with Ramsey Campbell is uh, coming down and reading every line of Bookhounds of London and t- telling me I did it wrong. but. To my mind, the fun of writing a Cthulhu mythos game is that you incorporate the thing that you're making it about and then put your own spin or your own interpretation on it. So I have written mythos scenarios that focus on what I consider to be very substandard stories uh, or very substandard even elements of the mythos, but – I then attempt, okay, given that this is terrible, how do I make it scary? How do I make it evocative? How do I make it relevant to the concerns that I've got in the scenario? But what I don't do is just blatantly contradict something that is established historical fact. I mean, I might say, uh, no this this was a misunderstanding of the god uh Bran, or this is a misunderstanding of the of, the, of bearded uh, Beatis, but the Core elements of Beatrice that are laid down by Robert Block and by Brian Lumley, you still, and by R- Ramsey Campbell to an extent, you sort of want to stick to those and then put a new interpretive gloss on them. Similarly, I'm sure there are tons of, of scenarios that, that put a new interpretive gloss on some aspect of the deep ones, even though the actual, uh, you know, uh, story, Shadow of Rensmith establishes some fairly narrow canonical boundaries for them, but you can always say, well, those are just those deep ones, whereas other deep ones do these other things. And that sort of expands on the Lovecraftian universe rather than limiting it. And I think that it's that sort of thing that, uh, and and everyone's taste is going to be different, but I think if you are respectful of and reflective of the original material you can wind up putting your own spin on something but again as 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 you imply robin that it that requires a an absent or very very uh, forgiving license holder as opposed to someone like Paramount who will in fact send you letters that say i'm pretty sure that there's no general order for destroying a planetary surface and when you say uh, it's in your show man in taste of armageddon they say well we're not going to mention it in uh, anything done this decade, so go back. And I had to, you know, come up with uh, General Order 34 as a thing that was not, in fact, planetary genocide and uh, make Captain Kirk a bluffer in retrospect when, in fact, the point of the episode is he's not bluffing.
0: Right. Because the property holders desire to promote certain things in their world changes over time especially with a long and you know any sufficiently long continuity is going to be self-contradictory and they are going to say well we're just not focusing on that now so don't talk about that Mm -hmm. um and uh, in terms of the the end recipient the reader of the scenario or the players who play in it i think the word respect is also very relevant because you are respecting their cognitive investment in the uh continuity, whatever that is. So uh, if you are, uh, you know, writing a DC Comics adventure and you completely ignore the established origin bracket S at the end of the Joker and create your own origin of the Joker, you are disrespecting all of the effort that people have made into reading Batman comics and knowing what the current canonical uh, origin story of the Joker is. Uh, but there are times when you do want to sort of use creative License, particularly when the continuity is real history or the mythos. And so the advantage of a scenario format is that you can actually just signpost to the reader that here I'm fudging. And so if you want to say, well, Bugsy Siegel didn't really arrive in Los Angeles until 1937, but this scenario, which is set in 35, it is kind of cool if he shows up. So uh, we're fudging. And just simply by saying that, uh, you have... Uh, forestalled uh, the, uh, you know, emotional reaction that leads to the well actually, right? You're telling the the reader or the GM that, that you do know better, but you are doing this for this effect. You're, you're making the, well, actually a partnership as opposed to a one-upmanship. Right. And so you have an advantage in this format. If you're doing a film version of that story, you can't have a uh, bugsy break the fourth wall, like Kevin Spacey in house of cards and go, actually, I didn't show up in LA until 37, but uh, bear with me here. So, uh, it's a big advantage of the, the format, uh, that you can, uh, do that and i think people are happy uh, as long as you are not treating their investment in the continuity as irrelevant as long as you don't care less about the continuity than they do the details of when and where you fudge are i think uh, usually forgivable now um, to go back to your um, sort of elaboration of of the question into uh, if you're moving beyond observing a particular continuity and instead just preserving a look and feel, that's actually pretty easy because then you're just looking for the cool moments where instead of rewarding the uh, GM or player's uh, knowledge of the particular details of how all of, this particular continuity fits together. You're just saying, hey, remember this great moment from Hard Boiled when Chow Yun-Fat uh, had a baby in one hand and a shotgun in the other? Well, I'm going to remind you of that by, uh, you know, well, this time it's an assault rifle and a kitten, but you know what we're talking about. And there, all you're really doing is sort of giving the hit of, hey, you and I, we like the same movies. And the great thing about role-playing is it allows you to... Uh, engage uh on a more direct level right there's one less degree of vicariousness in in between you and your interaction uh with those tropes so instead of being quentin tarantino and making a movie that says hey we like the same obscure thing you're running a role-playing scenario where you're saying hey we like this same cool thing
1: yeah the uh i think the difference is that where you're saying that you know uh, presenting a, a canon for an established property, you're, you're rewarding and reflecting the readers or players' intellect in the, the, or, the or at least their intellectual investment in knowing all the stuff about Batman memory, or Star Trek. Work. Their memory, uh, with. The sort of look and feel or, um, uh, after the, uh, after the school of version, you're rewarding their emotional investment. You're rewarding their emotional love of those things. And the moments, uh, in, in, in Hardboiled or in Conan that people are, are thinking about, they're, they're not necessarily saying, no, I will be angry if this is not true to the specific details of that Conan story. What they're saying is, I will be happy if this is true to the felt details, the emotional details, the response that I had to that Conan story and sharing that emotional response to Hong Kong action films or to Conan or to whatever it happens to be, I think is as important uh in a lot of ways as rewarding that that intellectual memory, because obviously you can have something that. Re- is absolutely true to canon, but violates your emotional feelings about it. And, you, you know, you're, you, you, for example, Voyager. Um, and then, <laughs> and, 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 and so it winds up being unsatisfying on a lot of levels, even though you can never point and say, well, actually, uh, Captain Janeway is wrong about the Treaty of, of, of Chiron, whatever it is. That's not going to be the issue. The issue is this just doesn't feel like Star Trek. Why are these people not Star Trekking? It says Star Trek at the front, and then there's no Star Trek. I'm full of anger. And I think that reflecting the emotional canon, especially in something where Why
0: are the Muppets all jerks now? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's not right. And and so uh and, and so especially in something where there is no licensor looking over your shoulder, is something that is incumbent on you as the creator of something that is meant to evoke that. Mood, and I think that role-playing games, in a lot of ways, because they are a collective art form, they 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 have to be about evoking mood. That that's a big part of what they do, as opposed to everyone sitting quietly and reciting Joker origins to each other like some sort of weird Fahrenheit four fifty one remake.
0: Yeah, I mean, because uh, there's uh, there is sort of a, a kind of a reward for accumulation of detail that some people are into, and there's also, a, I think, a desire on the part of uh, some. Uh, readers for the role-playing game to resolve continuity issues that the original creators never considered important. So there are people that well, a role-playing game, you can make Star Trek make sense because you can actually work out the distance between Earth And the Klingon homeworld, yes. (laughs) I'm here to tell you, no, you cannot. (laughs) And it's like, there's a reason why the distance between the uh, Earth and the Klingon homeworld is completely inconsistent in a whole bunch of different episodes. And that's because it makes the story better. And there's some things that you have to ignore to have a good story. And the uh, original purpose of any given episode is not to just establish more... Uh, continuity, uh, but rather to uh, tell a, a fun and interesting and engaging story. Yes, that, that's the Lynn Carter purpose, yeah. which is not necessarily the same as telling an engaging story. Well, speaking of being engaging, I think we should uh, engage ourselves to our final segment. It's not easy teaching in America's second worst school district and being a wizard on the side. But Nathan Kulwicky thought he had it covered. Until he received news of the worst kind. Inoperable cancer. He'll be dead before the start of the next school year. Now he will have to scour time and unheard of dimensions to find a magical cure to save himself. But can he discover an occult cure before the cancer kills him? And what will he be willing to do to find it? Find out in Terminal Magics, a novel by Plot Points Impresario, Ben Riggs. Terminal Magics is currently funding on Inkshares.com, a website which is half Kickstarter, half publishing house. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics to hear an audiobook of the first chapter. Ben will also be posting a chapter a week for your reading pleasure.
1: Back the book, and a beautiful physical copy of the novel will be delivered to your door, if the book
0: funds. But Ben Riggs is sweetening the deal for the fine audience of Cartus.
1: If the book funds with 1,000 backers, he'll produce an abridged audiobook of the novel and unleash it upon the world
0: for free. Tell your friends, neighbors, investigators, players, and favorite local werewolves. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics. That's Inkshares.com and search Terminal
1: Magics. Don't wait, because this campaign will be over faster than you can say, Gareth ryder henry
0: The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that uh, we are once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That's the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send him back into history to perform uh, various missions to uh, aid and fix up and buff the time stream. But uh, this time, I see that the uh, time machine is somewhat uh, dented and uh, has some uh, smoke damage and uh, I think there's some chunks of uh, pumice in the uh, deaccelerator because uh, Ken, uh, you were recently a victim of uh, mission sabotage (sighs) <sighs> uh, by the uh, evil forces of the uh, the ChronoFlexers, who are are they the? main antagonist you face or are they just one of a range of they wish yeah. they wish they were the
1: main antagonist that i face the chronofluxers they're you know you know what happens right any technology it gets adopted by um the street as they say find its own uses for things kids who think they're cool they get their time machine they get a cool name for themselves with are chronofluxers blah 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 and they just go around being jerks and that's all So these are is. Is like
0: the kids who who tag murals uh, right, okay. exactly.
1: They show up and they, um, uh, put yardsticks behind, uh, Napoleon when David is trying to paint him, stuff like that. Right. It's just jerk moves. So the Chronoflexers think they were, uh, they were the main foe. They are an ongoing problem. Yes, I don't deny that they're a problem, but, Main foe, they're they're at best a um uh, a B list villain, right? But they've stepped up their game because this time they tried to kill you. Well, yeah, that's because they don't like being told that they're not real villains. That really angers your mediocre semi
0: villain. So the, the, your your taunting of them resulted in their uh, messing with the uh, navigational system of the time machine, and while you're uh, on your way home. From a, uh, another mission, which perhaps we'll talk about in the future. Or talked about in the past. Dum, dum, dum. Time. Yeah, right. Time. Uh, they, instead of landing, uh, in, uh, 2015 in, uh, beautiful Hyde Park, in, uh, Chicagoland, uh, you arrived, uh, in a, uh, beautiful Roman town, uh, but unfortunately at a moment of great stress because the, uh, the sky was dark. With ash, uh, there were uh, chunks of uh, uh, pumice intermittently raining from the sky, and in fact you realized that it was 79 AD, and you did your uh, time calculations and you found out that in fact you were uh, eight hours away from the uh, pyroclastic surge that was going to... Uh, fall from the uh, the upper level of the sky where all the uh, ash was onto uh, sort of ground level and then flash cook everybody there to death where originally uh, it was thought that uh, the actual rain of uh, pumice and debris was what killed everybody in Pompeii in fact it was the dropping of this high temperature uh, surge of air that did it and you did your calculations and you found out that you were about eight hours away and it would take you seven hours and 50 minutes after reinitializing the time machine uh, before it was back and ready to go so you knew you had enough time you know a thin little wedge of time but you had uh seven hours and 50 minutes during the last moments of Pompeii in order to do something. And you're looking around and you're seeing uh, chunks of pumice fall from the sky. You're seeing there's still uh, a fair number of survivors in the city. It hasn't completely uh, evacuated itself. But uh, what did you do in that uh, period of time when you were at loose ends in the last moments of life for the people of Pompeii? Well, I did a couple of things. I mean, first,
1: what you do is you check around, you make sure that, that the local um, uh, library at Herculaneum is actually the best library in the area, because this whole stretch of uh, the the Gulf of Naples is mostly rich uh, Roman families, sort of second houses, retirement uh, places, put places they stash their uncle when he's politically un- un- unreliable. And so a lot of these... Are very old families, uh, the Pizos, for example, uh, Julius Caesar's, uh, I think they were his maternal uncles, um, have a villa down in uh, Herculaneum. So there's going to be a lot of libraries. And we know that there's one library in on Herculaneum that was uh, very fortunately for everyone, um, sort of, they they look up, they see the volcano, they're like, well, volcano, better box up the library. And they did that. And then the pumice came down and sealed the library boxes shut. So, when they opened the boxes, archaeologists later, they found 1,800 scrolls that were in, one doesn't want to say, you know, mint condition, but they weren't vaporized, as a, which is what would have happened if they hadn't been put in their boxes. So... While I'm in Pompeii, just check around, ask people, hey, you know, uh, is the library safe? And they'll say, you mean, you know, Quintus Verenius's library? And I'll say, yeah, that's the one. And then go make sure that there's no lost manuscripts, masterpieces around uh, that have been left in Pompeii to be buried in ash. Uh,
0: That'll take me probably, you know, an hour or two. Right. And you'll be ducking from building to building because you don't want to get hit by a chunk of uh, pumice that will brain you. Well in the in um uh, according to the
1: the records of survivors uh you could just wear a pillow on your head and the pumice would bounce off so i'm i'd just borrow a pillow and that's not going to be a problem or take the pillow from the time machine i have pillows there um the other thing that i'm going to do after i've made sure that there's no lost masterpieces that need to be unlost is probably wander down to the beach at Stabier, where my buddy Pliny the Elder is hanging out uh making notes on the volcano and trying to rescue his friends um uh there's a uh, a, a lady named Rectina, who we don't know if she survived or not, Um, and then there is another guy named Pomponianus, and Rectina might have been Pomponianus's wife, or she might have been the wife of one of Pomponianus' friends, or she might have been an entirely different lady, but Pliny has shown up in, in his boat, he's the commander of the Roman fleet at Misenum, he's ordered the galleys to go evacuate people from the beaches because he's a good guy, and, uh,
0: and for our listeners at home, they're thinking Pliny the Elder. That sounds familiar. But uh, what else do we uh, – what other context do we need we, to know? We mostly
1: that? know Pliny the Elder from his natural history, which is a, sort of a encyclopedic agglomeration of everything that we think we know about uh, plants and animals and 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 monsters and, and beasts and locations and rocks. He's also uh, wrote uh, The History of the German Wars which I believe most of which is lost. Um, And he's written a number of other things, uh, works on rhetoric, which is what he had to write during Nero's time because writing history under Nero was a great way to get executed. But uh, the natural history is where virtually all of our knowledge of things like manticores and unicorns winds up coming from is because he's assembled all of this knowledge about these, uh, these beasts and monsters uh, in this massive, uh, textbook, which is why it survived because everyone said, oh, great. One, mat- one stop shopping for all classical knowledge. I'll copy that first. But anyway, he's, he's quite a guy. Um, and, uh, he's sort of gotten through the, the Neronian persecutions without being murdered. So he's feeling pretty good. He's commanding this navy at Mizanum. Um, he's sent the navy out to help evacuate people. He's taken a small boat to evacuate his friends. And while he's on the beach, uh, he just sort of topples over and dies. And, they don't know if it's because he inhaled a big wonk of sulfur or if he just had a stroke or a heart attack because he was a tubby asthmatic, which is not exactly
0: the best uh, climate to find yourself in. If you're going to rescue someone from a pyroclastic cloud, perhaps uh, don't be a tubby pot, uh, yes, asthmatic. No,
1: don't be a tubby asthmatic. Exactly. And so, um, uh, I think that going to, uh, Fix up Pliny is probably my next job and I can, uh, you know, bring one of the many mi- medical emergency kits that festoon the inside of my time machine, a little, uh, maybe a little adrenaline, maybe one of those cool oxygen masks with the tube on it. Um, anything to keep, uh, plenty alive so that he can escape with all of the other people that he came to escape. They all got away. Uh, and then they wrote and they said, well, we left Pliny on the beach. He wasn't moving. <laughs> We're pretty sure he was dead. So if I just sort of revive him and get him going with his friends, then Pliny survives and he lives maybe another decade, another decade and a half, writes some more stuff. We get more Pliny, which is all of the good. And, uh, also, you know, scholar to scholar, manticore fan to manticore fan, just a, a nice thing to do. You can't rescue everyone in a, in a city like Pompeii or, uh, because, it's going to kill, you know, thousands of people, and I have one time machine, not a um, uh, not a convoy of of, uh, t- of of two and a half ton trucks. Right, and
0: it's still reinitializing. You can't just keep uh, rescuing people for the next period. Uh,
1: but I can uh, make sure that Pliny lives through the thing, and uh, he's got another, like I said, decade or so of life probably. So uh, let's get another couple of books out of Pliny, and then maybe after the. Machine works again, and we've got Pliny stored in his uh, nephew's house, um, uh, writing up his volcano observations. And the nephew is Pliny the Younger, right? Pliny the Younger, exactly. And I just drop by and say, hey, Pliny, uh, remember me from the beach? Can I borrow uh, the history of the German wars? I'll get it right back to you. And he's like, sure, sure, I got tons of copies, take one. Yeah, yeah the warehouse costs are killing me. Yeah, no, believe you uh, me. Self-publishing. I'm so lucky that the building in Pompeii that they were in was open, and so therefore they, uh, they got flash-cooked now now the collectors market's really going to do well but i think that um i think i think rescuing Pliny and then incidentally rescuing the history of the german war would not be a bad takeaway from pompeii in 79 ad
0: and are there uh, any uh, souvenirs uh, that you want to uh, pick up along the way
1: well i mean pompeii like i say it's kind of a vacation town i don't know that there's anything specifically there that i can't get better in some other place in um uh, in in italy uh in 79 ad uh, maybe you might want to pick up a
0: um, It was a big theater town. It was it actually yeah. had more theaters than uh than Rome. Uh so you uh maybe could pick up some lost uh, scripts. Yeah, go down
1: to the go go down to the uh tiring room, as they called it, and and pull out some uh some prompt scripts. Uh it wouldn't be a bad idea to see if the rest of the tragedies of Thaestes are lurking around there. I think that this is about Thaestes' time. Seneca, actually. This is his Right. We're, we're immediately post Seneca because, of course, he, unlike Pliny, does not survive Nero, but I'm sure that there are Senecan works that are being, uh, rapidly put on to make Vespasian happy because anything that Nero didn't like is something that Vespasian did like. So yeah, maybe, uh, pile up some lost Senecas, some lost Thiesteses, Thiestes. No, Thiestes isn't the, isn't the playwright. Thiestes is the play topic. I think it's Seneca. It is Seneca. There we go. That's what happens. Yeah, so get get a copy of Thaestes, Seneca's Thaestes. That's what I'm going to get um, from, the, uh, from the theater uh, tiring room, as you mentioned.
0: Um, now, uh, because it's a resort town, there's a lot of uh, beautiful objects around. And uh, if you are in the Toronto area uh, from now until January 3rd, when it closes, there is actually a, a big exhibit uh, about uh, the last days of Pompeii at the Royal Ontario Museum. And uh, there's some really uh, gorgeous... Uh, pieces there, my favorite was the uh dormouse storage jar uh so uh as i 'm sure we all know uh the Romans really enjoyed themselves a uh, uh a nice bit of dormouse it was uh, considered a, a delicacy uh so there was this uh cool sort of uh jar where many Romans door... were cats yeah <laughs> it 's not known, not a big thing they don 't talk about it, but it 's true well i uh, i'm not sure that the cats uh would cook their uh Dormouse in uh, garum and wine sauce before. Uh, no, the Romans in... are
1: imitating the cats. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like you see the cat does something. The cat's high fashion and awesome. And you're like, I want to do that. I'm going to eat dormice. It's not super good raw. Let's cook it in
0: garum and wine sauce. I can't believe I have to explain this to you, Robin. <laughs> so there's this great uh, clay j- jar that the uh, the mouse could come almost up to the way the, to the top of it, but couldn't get out, and so you could feed it. Uh, Little bits of olives or basil or whatever uh, herbs you wanted to make the dormouse especially delicious. And uh, uh, it could uh, have air and enjoy all these uh, delicacies before it uh, met its terrible uh, fate. Uh, There's also a really beautiful mural of uh, seafood, which would have been probably uh, an uh, advertising for a fishmonger's. Uh, So if you're in the area uh, and you haven't uh, caught the Pompeii exhibit, I would uh, suggest that you do so because it's a really good one. Um so uh, obviously you reinitialize the machine uh, you got back here in time and uh is there anything you're going to uh, uh do to uh now that the chronofluxers have have escalated or are you just going to uh, write this off to a, 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 fluke ability to sort of strike at the heart of your time machine. It's just youthful
1: hijinks is what it was. Uh, obviously they, you know, they can't even sabotage a time machine, right? And it's not like that's tough. Those things are, um, uh, they're bulky is what they are. Uh, if you look at the records of, of time machine use, nine times out of ten something goes wrong. Uh, obviously mine is, is a high end one, but, but yeah, they, uh, they couldn't even do that, right? I'll just put it in the file, uh, send it down to, time enforcement or whoever, whatever the division of time incorporated is that takes care of that nonsense and get on getting on. I'm not, I'm not about revenge. I'm not about uh, chasing people back and forth through time. That's a great way to, to wind up fighting Jack the Ripper among other
0: things. And I don't need that kind of headache. Well, it's, it's very kindly of you to look at that as mere, uh, high spirits rather than attempted murder. It may be attempted murder, but all it wound up being was high spirits. If if they're
1: not that good at attempting it, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of uh, paying attention to it.
0: Um, and so, uh, you're looking at the the German War manuscript uh, by uh, Pliny the Elders. Anything particularly uh, uh, surprises you about its contents?
1: Uh, I think the thing that will be most interesting about the German War by Pliny is th- is comparing it to Tacitus's studies of the Germans, because Tacitus, of course, has a really strong ideological viewpoint about uh, the Germans. The, the Germans sort of represent this pure uh, state before we became all horrible and, and decadent. And uh, it will be interesting to see to what extent Pliny's more, uh, what do I want to say, more primary source research does or does not throw Tacitus's uh, Germanica into high relief. And so it'll answer a lot of the questions that people have is to, to what extent is Tacitus repeating what actual historians at the time would have believed, and to what extent is he engaging in a sort of uh, political, um, uh, um, uh, I don't want to say propaganda, but a politicized history in the way that, for example, if you go to the history section of, uh, you know, books about the Iraq War, Most of them are political, as opposed to actual historical works. So this will help. This will be a yardstick that will help you separate the factual from the polemic. Exactly, and therefore increase the value of Tacitus's uh, Germania, as well as also obviously providing yet more data about you know the the extent to which the 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 space between the Rhine and the Elbe was ever uh, Romanized, because that was a huge. It's less important now that the Germans have basically been broken to the European wheel. But it was
0: a big deal up until even the 1950s and 60s and may still be again. Uh, well, uh, since you've got uh, all of that to leaf through and absorb and uh, more Dracula movies to watch, I think, as well, mm-hmm. uh, I guess uh, I better uh, leave you to it and we can declare uh, yet another uh, podcast done. But I'm I'm really glad, Ken, that you weren't... Uh, Cooked in a pyroclastic uh, surge that would have put a big uh, damper in future episodes. Especially because I
1: had not been sitting at the bottom of my dormice well eating uh, basil and making myself tasty.
0: Indeed, yes. So I will uh, catch you next week, and listeners, we will catch you all next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Terminal Magics, Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Shield us from fast-moving pumice by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Michael Kuehl, Matthew Clare, and the oft-returning Rick Neal. Stay tuned as we prepare our upcoming Patreon. Right now, I'm looking into bells, and also whistles. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hite. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.